Great. Well, welcome. I want to thank everybody for coming to our panel discussion today focused on um, transnational aging and the Chinese diaspora. Um, today, we're going to be focusing primarily on uh, two recent works that have uh, been published in this area. One is my book called Chinese Senior Migrants and the Globalization of Retirement. Um, and the other is Chen, uh, Ken Sun's book called Time and Migration. Today, we have our panel presentation set up in a way that we've divided us, will be divided into two hours. Um, in the first hour, we'll focus on my book. I'll give a very short presentation, uh, followed by commentary by Professor Russell King, who joins us from the University of, uh, he's a professor of geography at the University of Sussex. Um, after that, commentary by um, Professor Andrea Louis, who is joining us from Michigan State University, and then Ken Sun. Um, the second hour will be focused on uh, Ken's work. He'll start with a brief presentation of his own work, followed by commentary from Sarah Friedman, who joins us from University of Illinois Champaign-Urbana, Sarah Lamb, who joins us from Brandeis, um, and then I'll finish up with a few comments. Um, please feel free to um, ask questions. You can put them in the Q&A button at the bottom of the screen at any point during the conversation. Um, but we're also going to leave time at the end to have more conversation among ourselves. We'll also have a very brief break, probably three minutes or so between at, uh, at five o'clock um, between the hours, um, or at least between the panel presentations as the timing works out. So with that, um, we can get started. Um, so as I said, my name's Nicole Neuendorp and I'm an anthropologist. I work on Chinese migration and family life. Um, in my book, um, the Chinese, which is called Chinese Senior Migrants and the Globalization of Retirement, I focus on the contemporary migration. I'm sorry, I'm a little bit nervous. I apologize. Let me try again. So I focus on the contemporary experiences of Chinese-born seniors. So that is individuals who've migrated from Southeast China to the US for the first time at the age of 60 or older. Um, my focus primarily is on people who migrated between the years of 1990 and 2010. My ethnography is primarily about Cantonese-speaking senior migrants, and that was a conscious methodological choice that I made. Um, I do get restier each year, but Cantonese has been my primary field language for the last 20 years. Um, you may also know that Guangdong province, where Cantonese is spoken, is the area of origin for Chinese immigrants who first began coming in large numbers to the US beginning in the mid 1800s. So that long history of engagement with the US has ended up coming into important play for understanding why it is that since 1990, 30% of all Chinese migrants to the U.S. have come at the age of 60 or older, so that Chinese are, on average, older than all other American foreign-born immigrants. My focus allowed me to create a detailed ethnographic picture of the lives of this group of senior migrants as a way to help document the diversity of Chinese-American lives in the United States, where discourse about the model minority has largely hidden from view the reality that Asian Americans, to quote historian Erica Lee, are overrepresented at both ends of the education and socioeconomic spectrum of privilege and poverty. 
So in the book, I highlight the uniqueness of this group, but I also seek to put their experiences in conversation with those of senior migrants from other areas of China and also with senior citizens engaging in retirement migration trajectories across other world areas. Like many ethnographic projects, my research began a little bit by accident. So in 2007, as I finished up a longer research project in Hong Kong, I was looking for a new project and started teaching English as a second language, what I'll refer to as ESL, as a volunteer to low-income Chinese-American seniors in Boston's Chinatown. I had assumed that my ESL students would be long-term residents in the United States. Um, so as I first got to know them and I realized that none of them had been in the U.S. longer than a decade and some of them for just a handful of years, um, I was surprised. Um, it ended up turning out that they were all recent migrants. Mostly they had come directly from Guangdong province, which they had left in their 60s or in their 70s to relocate to the greater Boston metropolitan area. They worked in restaurants, they worked as caregivers for children or infirm adults, they worked as janitors, as hotel cleaners, and in a handful of cases, as administrative help in Chinatown area professional offices. Some of them had been sponsored to come to the U.S. by adult children, but others had been sponsored by siblings or by parents. Um, and, and they all had multi-generational family living in the United States, in North America, and in other world areas. Through our casual conversations, I learned bits and pieces about their lives. They told me about the family members that they had left behind in China. This included aging parents, adult children, even grandchildren that they had cared for before migrating. They noted both advantages and disadvantages to living in Boston. This included things like food, service safety, safety and of course, racial concerns. Many of them voiced in anguish how difficult it was to get by and to adjust to living into the, in the U.S. as an older person. At the same time, they repeatedly talked about being comfortable and being happy here. So at some point, I decided that I needed to more formally investigate this intersection for this particular group of aging and migration. That is what it was like for them to migrate to an entirely new location to live for the first time as an older adult. So in 2009, after three full years of talking each week with my ESL students and meeting more, many more senior migrants in the process, I ended my volunteer teaching and I began collecting both interview and participant observation data. My research unfolded following several years. Each year I built on the previous one. First, I focused on what were the multifaceted motivations for their decisions to move to the U.S. for the first time as seniors. After that, I was interested in how these senior migrants interacted with Boston's Chinatown and with other networks and forms of community support. Last, I followed them to Quincy, a suburban area south of Boston that's become a kind of satellite Chinatown area. What I learned over these many years of interactions with a wide variety of Chinese seniors throughout the area highlighted their agency and their engagement with global flows of movement and geographic mobility processes. So as a result, I focus on how seniors age, what we might think of as their temporal positioning as older migrants, creates new possibilities for exploring forms of interaction, collaboration, and affinity to people, places, and ideas that might otherwise be unexpected. It's from these unexpected interfaces that I was able to document how my interviewees strived 
to achieve a sense of well-being, despite the potential obstacles to that well-being that they faced almost every day as aging individuals marginalized from mainstream American society. So that's a very short overview of how I got started um, in my project and some of the things I focused on. And now I'm going to turn it over to Professor Russell King. Okay, thank you, Nicole, and uh, good afternoon, everybody, although where I am, it's, uh, it's very late in the evening. Um, the first thing I want to say is that I really, really enjoyed uh, reading your book, uh, Nicole. I think it's a, a wonderful book. Um, I love the balance that you strike uh, between the bigger picture of the Chinese diaspora and the individual stories that you weave through the successive uh, chapters, and I love the balance that you create um, between theory on the one hand and empirical uh, data uh, on the other. So that's just my opening gambit to just give you my my honestly my my truly honest reaction uh, to the book. Um, I'm going to divide my comments into into two sections. Um, I mean, following the the indications that I was given by the panel organizers. Um, firstly, um, I'm going to uh, share with you what I think the contributions of the book are to the fields in which I personally work, which involve partly aging and migration and diaspora formation and so on. And then secondly, and maybe I'll spend a little bit more time on this because it will lead more to questions and discussion. Secondly, um, I, I was asked to focus on what are the unanswered questions raised by the book and what future directions does it uh, point to? So let me go back to the, uh, to the first part then. Uh, what are the contributions to the book of the book to the fields that, uh, that I, I work in? Um, I mean, for sure, this book makes uh, crucial and new insights into what I have myself called the aging migration nexus um, in a paper that I published in the Journal of Ethnic and Migration Studies, 2017, a, a joint authored paper. Um, we propose this term um, to look both at the phenomenon of aging as a migrant uh, and also migrating as an older person. There's a distinction between those two, two, two framings. And the first surprise that I had when reading the book was um, that this was not a book about long-standing labor migrants who age in place, a little bit as Ken Sun's book is, which is more about uh, long-stay long migrants who are then faced with the prospect of staying on in the United States or going back to, to, to Taiwan. Uh, but in Nicole's case, this was a book about relatively new arrivals. And as she's just told us, that her uh, participants were all aged 60 plus and, and sometimes substantially beyond 60 plus at the time they migrated from China to the US. So that was the first kind of intriguing finding that I took away, which kind of surprised me, but also pleased me. And I think that also leads to my, my second point, which is about the motivations uh, and characteristics of this migration. It's rare that migrants migrate for one single reason. Usually there's a mix of reasons, and this is what comes out from Nicole's uh, ethnography. It is, I guess, predominantly a family-driven migration connected to intra-family caregiving, I mean, specifically of grandparents towards uh, their grandchildren, but 
also more complicated than that. They're also providing services to their children. Some of them are also caring for their own parents. So we're actually can sometimes involved in a four generation kind of scenario here in which the actual protagonists of the migration are a kind of sandwich generation. But there's also the anticipation that they themselves will at some stage in the future, if not actually now, receive care uh, from their family members in the, in the US. So to use Nicole's term, I mean, in her introduction, I mean, in her introductory chapter, this is about assistance migration, but it's also about another category of, of uh, migration, which she highlights, which is uh, called amenity migration, or if you like, lifestyle migration. So um, her protagonists are also moving to the United States to access a different lifestyle. Uh, and to experience, if you will, the American way of life. The third highlight uh, for me was to learn more, since I knew virtually nothing, about the history and complexity of the Chinese diaspora, uh, how it has been uh, historically layered through time across uh, generations, indeed almost centuries, uh, how it's geographically varied from different parts of China, urban versus rural, different regions of China, also, of course, if we think of the wider diaspora, also Taiwan, uh, Vietnamese Chinese, uh, and, and, and Hong Kong Chinese, uh, and so on. Uh, and also how it's fractured by, by class, by language, um, and, and these various other um, kind of biographical dimensions. Um, so that was, that was the third point. And then the fourth point that I, I found um, kind of connected to, to well, not so much connecting to my, my own work, but something which I found uh, truly fascinating was in the penultimate chapter where you look at the, what, what you call the Chinese heart uh, and focus on ballroom dancing. And this, this also for me was a surprise. Well, that actually wasn't a surprise because the, <laughs> the clue is on the cover. <laughs> so I should have uh, kind of realized, but I mean, this was, this was, I guess, a kind of a surprise to me because in my naivety, I would have thought, uh, I mean, I thought that Western uh, ballroom, that ballroom dancing would, would be seen in, in, in communist China as a kind of symbol of Western decadence and cultural colonialism. But then I read in Nicole's book that actually during communist China, ballroom dancing was, was a widespread practice and even Mao Zedong was, uh, was an expert at it. Um, so this was really interesting, but, but what is further interesting is the way in which this leads into particular models of successful and active aging. And we have here a kind of an experience of aging, which I suppose is, is some way, some, somehow combines, and, and here I'm, I'm sort of lapsing into stereotypes to some extent, uh, somehow combines, you know, the, the, the Western model of individualized, energetic, in the, uh, active aging where, where people are, are responsible in a sense for their own well-being. And the more traditional um, model of aging, which comes from other parts of the world in various parts of the global south, where it's much more family based. I'm thinking here of, the, of, the, of that wonderful book by Katie Gardner called Age, Narrative and Migration, where she describes the aging process of Bengali uh, uh, elders in, 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 in London. 
So what we find from the Chinese experience is that, you know, everybody is, well, not everybody, but many people are dancing, they're playing ping pong, they're taking exercise, they're singing. And so they're creating this kind of bonding, I mean, on the one hand, bonding social capital, but on the other hand, also a particular way of, of exercising and keeping the body uh, relatively active. So now I turn to the second part of my little presentation, which is to talk about unanswered questions raised by the book and, and maybe some future directions. Here there are several, which I think is the sign of a good book, that there are many questions that it raises. So uh, what I want to do in the, the next sort of five minutes is just to be selective in, in how I use the book to think with some of the wider questions that, uh, that, in, that interest me. Um, as a geographer who was initially trained in economic geography, one of the things that I missed a little bit in the book was um, more detail about the economic foundations of this migration. Uh, Nicole, in your final chapter, you, you, you kind of throw in very, very brief mem mentions of segmented labor markets uh, and the new economics of labor migration. But it comes very late and it's very brief. And I guess if I can, if I want to be a little bit more critical, it would have been nice to have seen that kind of economic underlay to your analysis um, signaled um, earlier on. Um, I felt I wanted to know more um, about the pension situation. Uh, I looked for the word pensions in the index. Uh, it wasn't there, but of course it does pop up in a few places uh, in the book. There's a mention of $800 per month uh, uh, from one informant, but the actual material basis of these person's lives was a level of detail that I, I guess I would have liked to know more about. Um, the second uh, area which I think I was a bit surprised that there wasn't more attention to was the issue of gender. Uh, and again, that's not mentioned in the index, uh, which was a little bit of a surprise. Um, and it may be that that your participants, you know, the gendered aspects of their migration processes and their family relations is not as marked as many of us know it is in other in other migrations. Um, I've done a little bit of work on Albanian senior migration. Uh, the, so what I call the so or what has been called the so-called zero generation, the older migrants who follow their first generation uh, children and their second generation grandparents, and and the, the whole dynamics of that migration is very very sharply gendered. Uh, I don't have time to describe in what ways it's gendered, um, but gender seemed to be a little bit of a missing a missing dimension to. Uh, to, to your uh, analysis. Um, my third point for um, consideration and, and, and future work um, is that this was, this was a book which was resolutely focused on the 50 or so participants whom you interviewed and, of course, the ethnographic observations that you made of their lives. What was missing a little bit was the voices of the significant others, it would have been nice to have heard what the children and the grandchildren felt about the presence of their grandparents in their households, you know, their, their reaction to the language barrier, their reaction to different models of child rearing, uh, and so on. And in a similar vein, um, I felt I wanted to know more about the place uh, of Chinatown and also Quincy as well, 
what and who preceded it and what about the other inhabitants of those places, both the other inhabitants that are there nowadays, because again, you gave us a hint that most of these Chinatown places are actually not 100% occupied by Chinese, uh, they're maybe 40 or 50% or something like that. So the other inhabitants were a little bit missing. And also the historical evolution of, of Chinatown. I mean, we know from, from loads and loads of historical studies of urban ethnic America that there have been these, these enclaves which, you know, following the kind of Chicago school uh, narrative, uh, have succeeded each other over the, over the decades. So, you know, there's Little Italy, there's Greek Town, there's Swede Town and so on. And what was Chinatown built on in terms of its historical origins? Was it Chinese right from the beginning or was there a model of invasion and succession? Which, um, which we see to some extent in studies of Sydney's Chinatown. Um, I forget, I think the name of the author is Amanda Wise, who's done a really interesting study of, of Sydney's Chinatown, or Chinatowns, I should say, in the plural, because there too there's been a, a displacement to a newer uh, Chinatown, which is more suburban. Um, and there, the previous occupants of Chinatown, who are mainly, uh, if I remember rightly, Italian and Lebanese, were quite troubled by the, you know, the, the, the Chineseness of uh, the, what has become the prominent group. And Amanda Wise use, uses a kind of haptic lens to talk about the sights, the sounds, the smells, and the experiences of, 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 of being a previous occupant of a Little Italy, which is now a Chinatown. And I wonder whether there was those, those kind of tensions evident. I mean, you gave one or two clues. You mentioned Linda, who was a bit of a sourpuss in terms of her, um, her critique of, of, of what was going on. And, and you mentioned, I think, a single white uh, woman who was an observer at the dances. But these are very fleeting um, experiences. And then finally, um, just a couple of curiosities. Um, your fieldwork was done about a decade ago, so I'm curious to know what the end game is for these people. I mean, the redoubtable Mr. Mr. Lee, who we meet in almost in the, the very beginning of the book, uh, who migrated at the age of 75 and now is pushing 90. I mean, you know, do you know what's happened to him and many of the other of your interlocutors? Have you followed them through? What is the end game uh, in, in that fourth age of eventual decline leading to death? That's my first curiosity. And the second curiosity is more a terminological one. Towards the end of the book in particular, you, you use the phrase Asian Americans to almost as an interchangeable phrase for Chinese Americans. And I'm just curious, I mean, from a European and British perspective, to find out what you guys uh, refer to as Asian Americans? I mean, is it Chinese plus, I don't know, Vietnamese, Japanese, Koreans, and so on? Or does it represent a broader, uh, I mean, you know, Asia, uh, geographically, Asia stretches down to India, Pakistan, Bangladesh, and as far west as Turkey. From the British perspective, when we use the term British Asian, we think automatically of people from India, Pakistan, Bangladesh, and Sri Lanka. Whereas I, I sense that your, your kind of 
terminological vision of Asian Americans is something different. So that's just a curiosity that maybe somebody can, can clear up. But I mean, summing up, my, my knowledge of aging and migration has been seriously, profoundly affected and enhanced by reading and digesting this fantastic book. Thanks. Great. Thank, thank you so much, Russell. I really appreciate your comments. Um, I would love to respond to them, but I actually don't want to hold up time too much because we have so many other panelists to get through. Um, just, I mean, very, very briefly um, in terms of one or two of your questions, the end game. So uh, very sadly, Mr. Lee passed away even before the book was finished. So that was, I mean, even before I'd finished collecting my field work, actually. Um, but at the um ripe old age of 88 or so, um, maybe 90. Um, so some of the others I, I did follow, I haven't followed everybody through, um, but there are various reasons for that. Um, and then, yeah, sorry, okay. I don't wanna take up more time going into a whole bunch of other details, but I think, I think why don't I turn it over to Andrea um, and then we'll keep going from there. Thank you. Okay, um, just gonna time myself because I have no idea how long these comments I jotted down will take. Um, yeah, so um, mine, I just wrote them down because I did worried that I'm gonna forget something. Um, let's see. Yeah, so Nicole's book does an excellent job of showing how the diasporic imagination of Cantonese seniors is both informed by a rich history of emigration from that region and continued family connections, but also by their experiences in, in socialist and post-socialist China, um, which is I think what makes um, this book so powerful for me looking at these multiple elements. Um, her study maps out a dynamic and multi-layered transnational social field comprised of people who imagine themselves as related through kinship and history um, but her analysis also reveals tensions and discontinuities within this appearance of con um, continuity or this kind of assumption of being part of the same um, transnational community or social field. And so what on the surface may appear to be an act of family reunification when these senior migrants finally come to the U.S. Uh, it's also is also revealed to be fraught with unfulfilled expectations, um, which are a product of the way that these Chinese seniors um, even though they've now fulfilled their dreams of coming to the U.S., um, you know, had expectations based on their, you know, imaginations or their long-standing ties to family abroad and what they thought would come of that, um, but also through their experiences in um, pre-socialist China through Mao's revolution and then in a rapidly changing post-socialist China. So I get this sense of this very dynamic um, transnational social field with multiple parts as opposed to something that's kind of more cohesive and historic, just only historically rooted, um, which I think is very powerful. Um, and also I like um, how uh, she shows remarkably how these seniors who are, despite being socially and politically marginalized, create these very strong social networks with other Chinese in the US to make the best of, out of their retirement in, in the United States, um, despite what their expectations might've been when they came. Um, 
I wanted to say something briefly about how impressed that I am that Nicole worked with Cantonese speaking population. Her Cantonese is way better than mine. Um, and I, because I'm one of the descendants of, you know, Cantonese migrants from the early 20th century. So I did not grow up speaking, but um, like she said in her introduction, this is not an accident, right? This not just because she's fluent in Cantonese, but because it makes a lot of sense to study this population of recent migrants because of their specific economic positioning, because of their connection to this historical diaspora in, um, in U.S. Chinatowns. Um, you know, she talks about how um, Cantonese slash Toysanese people have a specific orientation to both other parts of the world and to the um, other parts of China and to the outside world. Um, and, you know, as we know, the coastal region of China, particularly Guangdong province, particularly, um, you know, the area, Pearl River Delta area has a long history of out, outward migration and, and connections to the outside world. And also, I think the potential or process of imagining um, what the outside world might be like. Um, like in my own work, I looked at how um, in the mid nineties, people in that region had access to Hong Kong TV, access to stories of people who had come back from abroad. And at that time, a lot of the people I talked to were reconsidering um, whether or not they wanted to migrate and um, you know, whether life for them in China, at, which you know, was at the time becoming a lot more prosperous than before um, might, might be a better choice. Um, so yeah, her, her book is not just an ethnography of Boston Chinatown as a discrete locale, but rather of its dispersed and, tra and transnationally oriented um, community. Um, so we get a sense of these elders' lives in regard to um, their transnational orientation and the shifting layers of identity um, over the life course. You know, so even though you're looking at them in their 60s plus, you know, their, their memories, their experiences of, of being in China and of imagining what life would be like in the United States and so on play into all of this. So it's very rich in terms of its it's time depth, even though your, you know, fieldwork is, is, you know, very specific in terms of its time period. Um, see, I'm just going to skip a couple of things. So, um, just one second, I have an alarm going off in the back. I, I, um, can you hear that? I hope it's not. Okay. I will just try to ignore it then. Um, it's my son's alarm to empty the dishwasher and clearly he is not, it's not working. <laughs> um, all right, so, oh, he's not here. Okay, so yeah, until I read Nicole's book, I had previously thought about 1949, which is the beginning of Mao's revolution as mainly as a moment of rupture and disconnection um, where, um, you know, from their perspective of Chinese American studies, Asian American studies, it's this moment when um, the Chinese abroad were cut off from their relatives, right, in China. Um, so for my dissertation research for my first book, I studied the In Search of Roots program, um, a program co-sponsored by the Chinese Culture Center of 
San Francisco and the um, Office of Overseas Chinese Affairs in China um, that brought Chinese Americans to, to their ancestral villages in the Pearl River Delta, like the, these very immigrant regions that we're talking about, um, to search for roots, right? And this was necessary because of the social marginalization experienced by Chinese Americans in the U.S., this idea that their roots weren't here, um, but also because of China's opening up, right? And the reason they had these programs in the first, uh, in the first place. Um, and so, you know, this is very much rooted in Toysanese uh, or Cantonese migrants um, whose families came in the first half of the 20th century um, and their descendants and their changing relationships to China as a homeland. Um, my current book project is, you know, I guess I, I ran this by Nicole. I felt like talking about my own research, um, which obviously connects to my own identity as a Cantonese American is relevant, I think, because of how her book allowed me to think about this um, community in a newer way or this larger diaspora, um, larger diaspora in a, in a different way. Um, my current book project focuses on my maternal grandmother who was uh, who came to the United States at the age of 29 um, in 1921 from Toysan. Um, and she was selected as U.S. Mother of the Year in 1952. Um, and I'm not saying this, you know, obviously this is it's a big deal, but this was certainly part of the cultural Cold War. This is part of the Cold War period um, in the United States and a way for the United States to say that they were... Um, treating its minorities well, um, contrary to how, you know, they may have been criticized for um, being hypocritical, a hypocritical dem democracy. Um, and um, also this was um, at the time when the model minority myth that Nicole mentioned earlier arose in the United States. And my grandmother's story was very much a part of this. Um, and the public telling of her story was one of assimilation and Americanization um, but as part of this book project that I'm working on, um, you know, I have one chapter that focuses on how in this moment in history, when she was chosen as U.S. Mother of the Year, which is, um, appears to be the pinnacle of acceptance as an American, right? She was brought to the White House to meet Bess Truman, national news coverage and so on. It was all premised on this idea of assimilation again, um, you know occurred in the same Cold War context that made it impossible for her ever to return to her village in China again, right? And it cut off, to a large extent, her relationship to her relatives and friends in China. Um, but she nevertheless remained oriented toward China uh, and the Chinese community because that was was socially significant to her. That made, made me think about this idea of the, the transnational social field, right? That she was part of, that these new senior migrants are part of but also how it's an uneven and, and very transnational social field. Um, so even when my grandfather died, she continued to donate money in her son's names to the Gun Family Association, um, sent remittances back to China and so on. So um, I was telling Nicole that I was thinking about what the flip side of her experience was, right? So she was able to come to the US, she became celebrated. She never got to go back. Um, but what about the people who didn't come to the United States for whatever reason, right? Weren't able to, didn't want to, um, those Toysanese residents who didn't emigrate abroad. The people in Nicole's book art would be the next generation down from that. I think they're more like my parents' age instead of my grandparents' age, but still, you know, the, the people who sort of had, 
have these continued connections to the U.S., but um, again, we're cut off for, for many years. Um, and to make a long story short, so my three of my uncles married three sisters who could read and write Chinese. So my grandmother was actually able to reestablish contact with her family in China in the early 1950s. Um, so things were not totally cut off. The letters were able to get through. They were sometimes censored or whatever. Um, but um, they began to get letters back from China. And one of the letters was written in this handwriting that was apparently not very good. So one of my aunts who was writing these letters commented to her sister about this horrible handwriting. Well, years later, the sister found out from her hairdresser who had, um, I think, since migrated to the United States that these letters were written by my grandmother's sister who had, she, her grandmother had, I mean, her sister had learned, um, gotten a tutor and learned to write in Chinese so she could communicate with her sister in the US, right? Um, and that's, I think a pretty amazing thing because she would have been born around 1900. At the time she would have been in her fifties, right? And very rare for women at that time to have been educated. Um, and, I, you know, of course, some of this might have been instrumental to get these remittances, but I'd like to imagine that some of this had to do with the act effective ties that she had to her sister that she might never see again. Um, so, you know, I, I use this as a way to think about Nicole's um, study and her contributions. You know, how did those who stayed in China remain oriented to their relatives abroad? How did their reimagining of life in the U.S. Oh, sorry. How did their imagining of life in the U.S.? changed throughout these years of separation. Um, and so, you know, like I said, I had been thinking about this relationship in terms of disconnect. I really, until I read Nicole's book, hadn't thought about reconnection. And I think that's what's so powerful about her book, you know, that these seniors migrating after retirement, uh, after the such a long period of separation, finally able to fulfill their hopes of diasporic connection through migration, to the United States, um, you know, coming with these hopes and expectations that are fueled by this um, longstanding dis diasporic imagination, you know, that characterized the migration as a way of life in Cantonese culture. Um, but they were also very much shaped by their experiences in socialist China and post-socialist China. Um, and so, you know, her ethnography allows us to think beyond you know, this moment of being cut off to look at what happens when families are reconnected. Um, and I think what she talks about very, you know, also powerfully, especially because it's through the lens of these seniors, um, is um, how these seniors had placed hope in, in socialism, right, um, in the government and with the withdrawal of socialist supports and privatization in China they weren't able to have this kind of retirement that they had hoped to have in China. They weren't ex able to experience um, the egalitarianism that had been promised to them in socialist China. So they were looking for that in the United States. Um, you know, I'm gonna just skip over this, this paragraph here um, and sort of just end um, with, um, a Potterite talks about this idea of the social imaginary. And I think that's a very compelling concept um, but I think Nicole's book shows us how the imagination, you know, um, exists in terms of being able to imagine yourself as a diasporic community 
but also how it's reformulated through the experiences and expectations that these seniors lived in China um, through the socialist and post-socialist China uh, Chinese reforms, and then how these were kind of reality tested once they arrived in the United States, um, and how they had to actively and resourcefully navigate the gaps between the imagination and the reality um, that they experience. And then just quickly, my questions really have to do with um, also follow up, but mainly I'm, I'm wondering what they think about the rise of um, anti-Asian hate uh, and xenophobia, um, you know, that has certainly changed the situation for Asian uh, Chinese Americans, but particularly Chinese American elders, how does that affect their sense of safety and security that they were seeking in the United States um, and within their Chinese community networks? Um, and, you know, to what extent are they aware of racism and to what extent is that changing how, how they feel, you know, Amer the hopes, I guess, that they're placing in America? Thank you so much, Andrea. Um, I love having the sort of your your grandmother is the flip side, right? The 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 one who who was here versus the ones who my group who were not able to come. Um, just super briefly, and then we'll turn this over to Ken. Um, I, I don't have a full answer. I haven't followed people as much as I should have the last couple of years, but I would just say that they're, you know, they're the. I, they've always had the sense of insecurity combined with what I do talk about as a sense of security in terms of social support here in the U S right. So there are always such stories that they have had to tell about um, um, if not being overtly um, attacked um, because of their race, um, at least a sense of insecurity related to living in Boston's Chinatown, which borders the theater district um, and has several universities nearby. So that there are always loud people out drinking um, and carousing late at night in ways that have rendered many individuals um, to feel very insecure in their own neighborhood. Also, for people who have a longer-term engagement with Boston, um, you may remember a time when, um, uh, you know, Boston's Chinatown was also uh, linked very much with, a, with sort of a red light district, right? And so that so that actually within that area, there's also a history of um, people mobilizing to protect themselves through having different kinds of security um, walks and other processes um, to help safeguard residents' security. So, so I haven't, um, in part because things cut off um, so quickly when COVID started, right around the time when I was sort of hoping to be able to reconnect with people more, um, and people have been sort of very removed during this period of time. I don't have a lot of in-depth conversations with people about sort of how the immediate effects of the last year and a half have affected them. Um, other to say, other than to say that 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 you know, in some ways, I think they, I, I think that they would tell me that while there are increasing concerns now, they've always felt different kinds of concerns um, in these areas as well. Um, so, Ken, um, I'd like you to introduce yourself as I turn it over to you. Sure. Hi, my name is Ken Sam. I'm currently assistant professor of sociology and criminology at Villanova University. It's a huge honor to serve on the same panel with Russell and Andrea. I'm a big fan of both of your work, and I'm really excited to read Nicole's book. I really think our works complicate and complement each other, and I will keep my comments short, like probably under 10 minutes. 
there are three major contributions I want to focus on uh, from Nicole's book. First of all, I think Nicole's book really challenged the perpetual foreigner images associated with aging immigrants in general and older aging, older Asian migrants in particular. As Nicole points out in her book, many scholars ask whether older migrants can be assimilated or incorporated into American society. Obviously, Nicole's answer is yes, even if they are recent arrivals. And more interestingly, and uh, they are incorporated into the working class communities in Boston area. And she argued that whether and the extent to which uh, older migrants can be incorporated incorporated into American society depends on how they are socialized transnationally and transtemporally. Many of these older migrants Nicole studies develop aspiration to come to the US even when they are physically in China. And after they arrive, the social welfare programs here motivate them and enable them to construct a sense of belonging to the United States. So these examples convincingly show immigrants' pre- and post-migration socialization play crucial roles in their adaptation to American life. And another interesting example about cross-border socialization and its implication is the conflicts between and among older migrants. Um, Nicole, in her book, Nicole identified two types of division among older Chinese migrants, across regional differences, and this has a lot to do with the language they speak, and also cross-class differences. So as Nicole mentioned in the book, many recent arrived older migrants from China are middle class uh, and better educated. So this, so this finding suggests migrants' present and futures are path-dependent. How they are socialized uh, transnationally and transtemporally not only affect their identities and practices, but also influence the dynamics within their social networks. And the social, uh, uh, another interesting thing I found in Nicole's book is uh, the discussion on how China has been changed over the past two decades. Nicole's work debunks the convention assumptions about Chinese diaspora. Many people assume Chinese immigrants are always oriented to their homeland. Many Nicole's interviewees emphasize their Chinese identities, but they also criticize how China has changed over time. For example, many of Nicole's uh, interviewees miss the past. They believe contemporary China has become more and more unequal or corrupt. As Nicole convincingly writes, senior express nostalgia for a life in which ideological values they work for in early years of PRC, collective cooperation, state support of workers, equality, and financial security are still the hallmarks of daily life rather than flashy consumption-oriented lifestyle that characterized Chinese society today. So for them, China is their home, but they also know their home has changed. Another thing Nicole talks about in her book is the rural-urban disparities. And this is a very, uh, there's a large literature on rural-urban disparities in China. And so basically, Nicole also realized that the ur- rural-urban inequalities also profoundly shapes how these older migrants perceive their homeland. Again, these older migrants may believe they are Chinese and maintain a strong sense of Chinese abroad, but they also try to negotiate new ways of being and belonging in relation to their changing homeland. 
Another example is intergenerational relationships. As Nicole acknowledged in the book, the intergenerational relationships in China are also changing. And the changing social and cultural landscape in China also motivate them to rethink how they should negotiate their own intimate relationship with family members here. Third, Nicole's book also convincingly analyzed how they experience individual and family transition transnationally. One example I want to give here is grandparenting. They come here to provide care for their grandchildren, but as their grandchildren grow older, they also experience a lot of estrangement and alienation or even conflicts. So on the one hand, they feel empowered to be able to prove their self-worth to their family members. But at the same time, they also feel disempowered as their grandchildren no longer need their care. So how do they find their self-worth and value? They try to provide care for their community members, right? So this uh, book has a lot of ambivalence. On the one hand, they feel migration can be very empowering, but at the same time, they also have a lot of frustration nationally and transnationally. I have to, um, I want to skip the rest of my comments and jump to the questions I have. So uh, I basically have two major questions. In Nicole's book, she mentioned the, the, the concept of temporal positioning a few times. I wonder whether you can elaborate the concept of temporal positioning. What do you mean by temporal positioning and how can we extend and use this concept in our own work? I also wonder how you think about your respondents, your interviewees grapple with the multiple roles of China on global stage and the complicated relationships between China and the U.S. today. For example, China is a rising global superpower, but rural urban inequalities have deepened. China gained new economic and political muscles globally, but China also become a major competitor with U.S. and in some cases, enemies with the U.S. Then how do these older immigrants position themselves in relation to their home and whole society? And how do their transnational and transtemporal positioning affect their ways of being and ways of belonging? This, uh, this is all I have. All right, Ken. So thank you. Um, I appreciate your comments very much. Um, um, and, 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 you know, appreciate um, sort of from all of you uh, a sense at which that the, the book is, you know, in some ways push you to think in new ways about the experiences of older individuals. And I think, you know, to a certain extent, that's also where I started from with, with the book itself. And in, in the sense that as I started listening to those stories of the individuals who I got to know first um, through being a volunteer ESL teacher in Chinatown, was that I think story after story, uh, you know, that I heard as I started listening more and more, you know, really sort of beat up on whatever preconceived notions I had of what, what life might be like for them or what, what, why they might have migrated and what was going on for them in these different kinds of situations. And which is in part what drove me to go sort of deeper and deeper into this one community, if, if we can even think of it as a full community, um, rather than trying to move beyond that and do anything more comparative, um, which, you know, in fact, I was encouraged to do it at one or more points and decided not to. Um, but, but I think, you know, um, 
you know, you've hit on a lot of the key, key, key things that were really mattered um, as I was, you know, working on this project in many different ways. I guess um, just to respond briefly, um, you know, so Ken, you know, so your, your, your question about sort of my, my thinking about temporal positioning, um, you know, is interesting because, you know, in many ways, I think in your book, you know, your, your articulation of what we think of as temporalities of migration actually gets more at what I was maybe thinking of in some ways in the back of my head, but which for me, I just frame more about sort of age because I didn't have that kind of comparative perspective that you do, um, which we're going to talk about in just a minute. And instead I was focused more on how, how being, you know, sort of at the life stage in which they were and having had the life experiences that they had, how those were the things that were really fueling them, both in terms of their motivation to come and their, their reception here. And at the same time, it led to a very different kind of experience than if they had come when they were younger. I mean, you know, there's, there's sort of perception that I talk about, um, particularly in one of my chapters of their U.S. as being somehow more egalitarian um, than China or sort of allowing them to live a more sort of um, a, a lifestyle more in line with what they had hoped to be able to achieve when as younger adults they sacrificed um, for, for, you know, the ideological principles associated with Maoist China, um, you know, on the one hand, that's a very strange idea for anybody who's thinking about anything related to migration or migration related concerns in the United States, that somehow that this would be a place where they would find support, where they would find possibilities for um, equality. Um, I mean, healthcare is a primary example, for example, that, you know, which is something that comes up in your work. So we'll talk about that in a minute. And I'm not going to go into it more here. But because they were coming at a life stage in which they were, in fact, um, able, if they were here long enough ahead of time to qualify for social security, or because they did have access, um, particularly in Massachusetts, there's quite generous um, subsidized housing for seniors. They they had possibilities to help aid them structurally. Um, and that, that's sort of that, a little bit of that economic piece that Russell was asking about earlier on, that enabled them to be able to not even though their lives were precarious, they actually weren't as precarious as one might imagine. Um, and certainly there are ways in which had they come at an earlier period of time, their lives would have been more precarious before some of those supports were in place. When you know many of the, the migrants of the same individuals, Chinese Americans of the same age who I met, who had come say in the 1970s, who were also working class, you know, they had much more overt stories of racism experienced throughout their lives than these individuals who had come later on and lived in somewhat protected situations among other communities of older adults. Um, obviously, there were exceptions. Um, Russell made uh, reference to one of those earlier. So a lot of sort of dynamics that were taking place in one housing estate um, between the older white working class residents and the Chinese um, older um, American residents. Um, Sorry, I got a little bit of I got a little bit lost there. Anyway, I, I'll come back to some of the way I was thinking about those kinds of sort of uh, commonalities across life stage when I provide some comments for your work, Ken. Um, but but for now, we'll just say that I, I you know I think I think that there are ways in which I could still flesh out better um, what I was 
you know, sort of getting at in terms of thinking about sort of their age, their positioning, the sort of temporal aspects of um, what they have lived through and where they are now when they have made those moves. Um, in terms of your question about the multiple roles of China on the global stage and how they have interacted with that, I think um, I think that I would get a very different answer. So one of the things that's important to note is that because my research largely finished um, in 2013, and since then I've had much more um, sort of fleeting interactions with folks in this group. Um, I, I think that in the last 10 years, the relationship between the US and China have gotten a lot more complicated. Obviously, we've seen that particularly in the last couple of years. And, and it's possible now that they I would be hearing somewhat different things. But a lot of them, you know, I had the group that, you know, um, social scientists would think of as a biased sample, right? Because I had people who had decided to stay in the United States. Um, a lot of them had had I did know of or had heard of people who had returned back to the to mainland and I did not have that comparative sample. Um, but what I had instead were people who, you know, one of the reasons I, I the fact that they had stayed still was pretty important that they stayed and they were actively engaged and and, you know, how they thought about themselves in relationship to the U.S. and had done throughout many parts of their life in addition to the actual sort of ties that they had started to set down here mattered a lot in terms of why they had made that decision. So, so that's not really a full answer to your question, but I think it's worth pointing out that talking to people now, I would get uh, different kinds of responses um, than I did during the period I was doing most of my research. And Nicole, do you remember earlier this year we talked about writing together and compare our, compare our findings? We should mm-hmm. totally do it. <laughs> okay. All right. That sounds great. Um, all right. I think it makes sense for us. To, it's five o'clock. I think it makes sense for us to take a three-minute break. Um, when we return, we're going to start with Ken's um, brief precis of his work. Um, and then move forward with commentary about that and hopefully have enough time at the end to do some more general group discussion about putting the two books um, in conversation with each other. Yeah, you had a lot to take on board from three commentators. So, um, uh, but it was, it was, it was fine. I mean, I, I hope that, uh, that all of our comments were, 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 were useful. So, yeah. Yeah, but yours in particular around the economics, I mean, part of that is, I think, and also about history of Chinatown, I'm realizing how much um, maybe there is in my imagination about those things that didn't make it onto the page, right? Like, you know, sometimes that happens when you're working on something, right? You forget sort of what it is that you know versus what other people will know or be able to imagine when they read something. So... Yeah, I mean, I mean, I probably came to your book um, much more as an outsider because I think the other two, the other two comment, obviously the other two commentators, Andrea and Ken, um, you know, their own, both their own personal experiences and their academic work are rooted in in Chinese migration and the diasporic experience. And you know, I I knew before I read your book next to nothing about. Um, uh, China as a, a as a, um, a, a as a as a locus for, for for migration research. So I mean, I I learned a lot, and I think my questions probably reflected. I mean, on the one hand, <laughs> more naivety on my part, but also perhaps 
um, you know, my ability to kind of think in a, in a much wider context, which are, perhaps is also a, a characteristic of geographers um, to, to, to think in a, a broader temporal and comparative framework. You know, we, that, that, that I guess is a little bit how we're, we're trained to, to think. To combine oh, also, to com also to combine various scales of analysis as well. Yeah. And Nicole, I see yeah. that you talk about social security also, so that's us um, relates to the pension, some of the economic pension issues, I guess. I mean, I saw, I see it in your index at least. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I do talk, I do talk about their social security support a little bit, but but Russell's like, I really have it. It's sort of a, it's a little bit of a footnote, like it's in there. But I think I probably assume more knowledge about like the fact that they're in subsidized housing or, you know, he, you know, Russell picked up on the reference, like the one time somebody gave me sort of a quote of how much they got from Social Security, which is a mm -hmm. I mean, people people in my group were living off of very small amounts of money compared to Ken's group overall. Sure. Yeah, so I don't know. So are, are we all... Uh, we're back, except for Andrea. Should we go ahead and get started? Yeah, probably. Yeah. Okay, Mark, if you want to put us back. Yes, Andrea. Okay, great. Okay, it looks like we're back. Um, so let's turn it over to Ken. You're in charge now. Thank you. Um, and I think I will answer all the questions in the end. Okay, so um, thank you for joining my uh, panel. Uh, many people ask me why I write a book about older migrants. There's short answer. There's a long answer. Uh, the short the the short answer is I was raised by my grandparents, and my grandparents are long term residents in Taiwan, although they are originally from mainland China. So I didn't understand a lot of the stories they told me when I was a kid. By becoming a sociologist, and by becoming uh, by in the process and in the process of writing this book. I reflect critically about the impact of time on migrate, migratory experiences. Um, and in my book, I also study long-term migrants, but these long-term migrants are not in Taiwan, they are in the US. In the US, we actually witnessed unprecedented increase in older migrant populations, and two-thirds of them have lived in the US more than 30 years. But this group of people have received very little scholarly attention. As a result, we overlook how long-term immigrants in the U.S. transform their daily life and social work nationally and transnationally. In my book, I make two theoretical interventions. First of all, I highlight how immigrants adapt and incorporate themselves into American society over time. Right now, much scholarly attention on immigrant incorporation or adaptation focused on so-called second generation, i.e. the children or grandchildren of uh, first-generation immigrants. But this scholarship largely overlook or downplay how immigrants can change over time or how long-term stay in the U.S. can transform these migrants so they are no longer newcomers. The second inter theoretical intervention I make in this book uh, is how migrants navigate their everyday life in a transnational social field that is changing. Right now, we have learned a lot about how cross-border ties immigrants have shape their lives and how these cross-border lives shapes non-migrants' everyday life through economic and social remittances. 
at the same time, I want to, in my book, emphasize time can change not only people, but also place. So my book, For Ground Time in Migrant Transnational Networks and the Cross-Border Fields in Which They Are Embedded In. My book used Taiwan as a case because I think Taiwan is a, uh, is a good case to study all the theoretical issues I discuss in my book, not just because I'm originally from Taiwan. First of all, Taiwanese immigrants arrived to the U.S. several decades earlier than mainland Chinese migrants. And Taiwan also embodies what scholars call com um, compressed modernity in East Asia, i.e. it ex experienced rapid and profound social, economic, and cultural transformation over the past two decades. And Taiwanese immigrants also display what Jennifer Lee and Ming Zhou call hyper-selectivity. They are better educated, not only than people who are staying, who are who are remaining in Taiwan, and also the average American in the U.S. So I use Taiwan as a case to examine how contemporary Asian American immigrants navigate the changing social cultural landscape in the U.S. and transnationally. My book incorporates the voices of both immigrants who stay here and return migrants who decide to move back to Taiwan. Uh, after returning from work in the U.S. I centralize, my book centralizes time onto the analysis of immigrant identities and practices. I demonstrate how aging immigrants transform their relationships with families, communities, and nation states. I also, I also analyze how they strategize their familial, social, and cultural well-being transnationally, and specifically how these immigrants utilize public uh, social welfare programs in Taiwan, public public transportation infrastructure in Taiwan, and uh, the affordable elder care services and facilities back home. And I think that my analysis have profound implication not only for older migrants here, but also for older non-migrants Americans here. First of all, I think uh, especially in, in relation to in comparison to Nicole's work, we should try to think more critically about the diverse types of older migrants we are facing today. And I also want to emphasize, unlike my respondents, many of uh, older Americans don't have a homeland to return to. So when they need health care, when they need public benefits, who can they turn to? So I think that this book is about older migrants, but it's also about older non-migrant population in the United States. And I welcome, uh, I look forward to uh, hearing your comments and thoughts. Okay, I guess, uh, did I go next, Ken, or? Sure. Okay. Hello, everyone. Uh, my name is Sarah Friedman. I'm professor of anthropology and gender studies at Indiana University. And it's really a pleasure to be here, to be part of this exciting panel and to have long term exposure to the various projects that have culminated in these books. So I, I, it was really a great pleasure to read them. So I'm going to talk briefly about what I see as a few of the key contributions of Ken's work, and I will intersperse that with a few questions and comments as well. And I will keep them short so we have more time for a discussion. 
So um, I see Ken's book contributing to three major bodies of literature. Um, I'm going to focus first on migration studies because that's obviously a prime interlocutor for his project. And what really struck me as I was reading was his explicit focus on temporality um, in the way that he's in integrating literature on the life course with literature on migration from a processual perspective, right? So not a one-time act, but something that extends over the life course and can involve movement back and forth or to new destinations even in some cases. Um, so I think he's really helping us understand how migrants' values and life goals and understandings of a good life and a good family life are changing through their migration experience, how in the process their own feelings of rootedness and belonging are also shifting, and how these transformations affect their emerging expectations for aging well. And I, I would really like us to talk more about this concept of aging well or well-being in older age, because I think both books are addressing this from various perspectives. So as a question here on the temporality front, Ken, I'm curious how your research might help us think differently about temporality itself. So in the way you talk about time in the book, it's rather linear, right? Which makes sense given, given the approach you, you took and, and your um, interviewee's own experiences of migration. But I'm wondering whether in reviewing their narratives and your observations, you began to rethink what time or temporality actually means, whether in regard to migration or aging or both. Right, and I, I really liked Russell's aging migration nexus concept in, in that regard. One thing that I think um, comes across both, Ken, in your book and in Nicole's book is this role of imagination. So how modernity and the future are imagined at different points in time. And Nicole, you also talk about nostalgia in that context, right? In, Ken, I mean, there's some nostalgia actually for the returnees, maybe a little bit more in thinking about a simpler Taiwan that was less consumerist, maybe, or materialistic. Um, but how, how imagination might um, encourage us to think about temporality in nonlinear ways, right? Circular, otherwise. Um, and putting um, aging individuals in a transnational frame maybe encourages a different understanding of temporality as a consequence. A second contribution to migration studies obviously is this focus on older migrants, which in the vast majority of the migration literature is not the primary focus, um, although it is increasingly so as the world's population ages. But I think one of the um, elements that Ken brings to this conversation is also deepening our understanding of belonging, right? which is often 
invoked in somewhat vague terms <laughs> in a lot of literature on, on migration and immigration. Um, but here he's probing it explicitly in terms of family and community ties, professional networks, social networks, access to aging and medical care resources, and how that shifts over time. And I like that term economy of belonging that you used. And again, this is something I think maybe could be deepened in future research. And then a third migration-related insight that um, really struck me and, and, again, I think relates to some of um, Nicole's analyses as well, is the deep and lasting consequences of entrenched racial hierarchies in the U.S. and other destination societies. Um, and, and how your interlocutors think differently about racialization and co-ethnic community ties over time, right? So maybe that kind of negative associations with Chinatown communities as being too insular, too enclosed, not willing to adapt when they're in the prime of life, but really turning to co-ethnics for support in retirement. Um, and that is where they find their source of belonging. And the irony then for returnees to Taiwan that those ties have to be renegotiated and they're not as comfortable in some ways. So how that also affects conceptions and experiences of belonging transnationally, I think is, is interesting to consider more. A second contribution of the book is to scholarship on family, gender, and intimacy. And I think, can you make a really powerful point that intimacy for um, these individuals and couples is something that has to be managed rather than assumed. It requires work. And you do a really nice job of detailing for us the incredible kinds of work and the real thoughtfulness, especially um, the senior generations bring to their relationships with their adult children and to grandparenting um, and how clearly some of that work is, is very clearly gendered, right? Um, with the feminization of care labor more generally. Um, and that, that's another place where there could be really interesting contrasts with Nicole because the mainland Chinese context has very different kinds of gendered expectations and more um, grandfather participation in care work, shall we say. Um, a lot in thinking about that body of literature, I was really struck by the fact that almost all of your interviewees, if I'm not mistaken, originally migrated to the US as married couples. It seems that very few migrated as singles. Right. And I'm curious how they maybe mused about how their lives might have turned out differently if they had married after migrating. Those who got divorced, there are a few, it seems, not too many. Um, and those who remain single, you have one intriguing, as I'm sure you'll knew, knew that I would pick up on this, intriguing reference of a man who tries to marry uh, a woman from China and that falls through. Right. So, how are those 
you know, you talk about spousal relationships, but you presume a, a kind of normative trajectory of arriving as a married couple and except when death or very rarely divorce intervene, remaining married, right? Um, and I think that assumptions of heteronormativity are, are, are striking not only in the senior generation, but also with respect to their children, because I'm gonna guess that not all the children are following a heteronormative life path and there's no mention of it in the book, at least. I'm curious whether there is some mention of it uh, in your own data that, that could make that a little more complex, especially given the greater acceptability of um, LGBT identity and relationships and family formation in Taiwan, and also increasingly um, recognition of that in China as well. Okay. Um, and then finally, um, I was struck by the insights you give us for thinking about mobility, both in terms of physical mobility, obviously moving multiple directions, but also class mobility and status mobility. I mean, th this group are really um, striking as both lumpers and splitters in terms of status categories and identity categories, who they bond with, how they, um, distinguish themselves as immigrants to the US from native born communities, but then also those who return to Taiwan distinguish themselves from Taiwanese who never left. Um, and then what are the divisions and hierarchies within immigrant communities um, based not only on class, but education, political affiliation, native Taiwanese versus mainlander populations, et cetera. Um, so there's a real, interesting way that we get a much more complex picture of how status and mobility are being reconfigured in immigrant populations over time as well. So one of the things that I was surprised by, and, and this came out a little bit, I think, in the questions posed to Nicole as well, is they didn't talk very much about death or plans for death, where they wanted to be located in death. And I think that jumped out for me also because I am uh, remember a moment in Julie Chu's book about Fudronese sending communities to the U.S. where she discovered elderly Fudronese who were doing the paperwork to become U.S. citizens through their children, not because they wanted to move to the U.S., but they wanted to be citizens of another country so they didn't have to be cremated in China and they could have a ground burial. So I, it, clearly this is on people's minds and yet there's they're thinking about care, they're thinking about aging well. How, how do ideas about dying well also factor in to ideas about aging well? Um, and then two points, just brief points, um, the lifestyle migration literature, and maybe because I've been thinking about this literature in a very different context, 
I, I would have loved to see more critical reflection on how so much of that literature takes the global north as its point of origin and takes definitions of lifestyle and the good life, whether it's in retirement. And Nicole, you do a nice job of breaking down those various um, types of, of lifestyle or retire, aging migration, um, or whether it's as younger people. Um, but so much of that takes a, a Western ideal of the good life as its starting point and how to m achieve that through maximizing resources in um, less expensive locales. How can your research really can speak to that um, focus? We might even call it a bias in the lifestyle migration literature and, and really think more broadly about what a transnational resource environment means if our point of departure is not the one that has dominated the literature to date. I think about care seekers who return to Taiwan as also being a kind of lifestyle migrant. Um, and I'm struck, I, obviously this is speaking to another literature, but I'm really struck by their their, the way they think about caregivers in Taiwan, especially migrant caregivers, and, and how they're bringing sometimes an American sensibility to the way they think about that, and how, given the vast literature on migrant caregiving in East Asia, how that viewpoint differs from that of uh, um, seniors who never left using caregivers and some of their own sort of entrenched stereotypes and forms of discrimination. Um, and then finally, I would love to hear more about the children's generation, right? Um, that the assumption seems to be that there is considerable intergenerational upward mobility, but if we compare them to their peers in Taiwan, is that true? I don't know. Um, and I would love to hear more about what the adult children, and this would also applies in Nicole's case too, hear more about what the adult children say about their parents and their parents' choices for retirement and aging. And, and maybe that's because I'm very much feeling myself part of the sandwich generation at the moment. But um, I, I think there's a lot of rich material there to, to work with to really extend it transgenerationally as well. I will stop there. Thank you so much. Um, I will answer some of your questions in the end. So maybe I will give the floor to Sarah. Okay, great. Thank you. It's it's wonderful to be here. I'm unmuted, right? I'm still just seeing you, Ken, but okay. Um, so it, yes, it's my honor and pleasure to participate in this event to celebrate the publication of these two exciting books, which I have enjoyed reading here. Um, and my own remarks stem from my position as a cultural anthropologist. Um, I'm a professor of anthropology and of women's gender and sexuality studies at Brandeis University. And uh, I have long had a central research interest in aging in India and in the U.S. and transnationally. And I see both books as wonderful new contributions to the field of anthropology and sociology of aging transnationally. And I also fondly remember working with Ken when he first embarked on this project while a PhD student at sociology at Brandeis, my own neighboring department. So it's exciting now to see his impressive book in print. 
So both books we are celebrating today are beautiful examples, I think, of how rich long-term ethnographic and interview-based fieldwork, highlighting the voices and experiences of individual people, not only makes for books that are compelling and engrossing to read, but also leads to powerfully illuminating discoveries. Both books feature the voices and perspectives of particularly situated individuals, highlighting ambiguity and nuance, situated variety across social distinctions such as gender and class. Um, We get so many different points of view in each case in, in, in Ken's chapters, he goes through and we get, you know, some people feel this way, some people feel that way. And that is what social life is all about. And I think the best sociological and anthropological research highlights those issues. Um, They both also emphasize a sense of agency, the potential for seniors' um, agency and self-definition, quoting from Nicole briefly there. And um, also, like Sarah Friedman before me, the sense of aging well. Uh, um, And in this way, I say that Ken's book and Nicole's both go beyond this. um, a, A lot of the emphasis on migration in our public discourse and in a lot of scholarship and anthropology, at least, has focused on sort of the suffering slot, um, migrants as, as sufferers and who are in precarious positions. And you get a real strong sense in both these books of older people creatively pursuing, um, imagining, and, and achieving in many ways very hopeful scenarios and creative scenarios scenarios of aging well. So um, let's see, I'll organize my remarks around um, three themes uh, where I integrate three questions for Ken also, and I think I'll keep my remarks quite brief so we have more time for discussion. So uh, first um, I'll highlight the unique contributions Ken's book makes with its focus on long-term migrants. So Time and Migration, his book, makes a unique and valuable contribution to the growing transnational aging field by focusing on long-term migrants who are older now, but who migrated much earlier in life from Taiwan to the U.S. and sometimes going back to Taiwan. And much more of the work on aging and migration, and at least that I know in in anthropology um, in the aging transnational migration field, has focused on younger adults. Right now, this is a big trend who migrate away from homelands. And so then there's a kind of care crisis back at home how we can care for the older people left there and younger people creatively sending remittances and, and talking to their elders over Skype, et cetera. That's important work, but it's not what Ken does. And then also um, there is work like Nicole's important book too, focusing on older, older people who migrate to pursue retirement migration or to be with their children, to seek something new, et cetera. Ken's book on aging and transnational migration experiences through the lens of people who are old now, but who first migrated much earlier in life when they were young adults is quite unique and valuable understudied topic. And so this leads to my first question uh, for Ken regarding temporalities of migration. So this lens of temporalities of migration is a central one in Ken's book, uh, one of its major theoretical and conceptual contributions, which he develops explicitly here and there throughout the book. And um, by this, he looks at, he means that he's focusing on migration as an ongoing process that takes place not only across national cultural borders or places, but also over time. So a dual process there um, that he calls temporalities of migration. And 
he explores how interlocutors, his respondents' narratives about their changing life experiences, their worldviews, their subjectivities and senses of self as they move physically and conceptually across social cultural worlds of Taiwan and the United States and also across their lives. And one thing that struck me is that this seemed not only to be an analytic theme that Ken was drawing out in the book, but that you could really see it in the, his interlocutors' quotes. So it seemed to both be an analytic, like edict perspective and on what anthropologists call an emic and insider's perspective at the same time. So my question for Ken, I was interested is, did you approach your field work with the temporalities of migration framework already in mind, uh, or did you really see this emerging centrally from your fieldwork materials and from the perspectives of your interviewees themselves? So... Um, a second theme I, I wish to raise um, concerns the issue of uh, creative agency, a theme important, really important in Ken's book and in Nicole's, and how we see how um, quite self-consciously often the older people uh, transform what they see as Chinese and Taiwanese traditions in, in quite purposeful, self-conscious, creative, strategic, and innovative ways, very thoughtful as they move through their everyday lives. So we see in the rich ethnography um, how the... Um, well, for one, this makes a, it, it challenges popular conceptions that we see both in public discourse and in some scholarly discourse that represent older people um, as basically compared to the young, the ones fixed in time and tradition and lacking the creative agency to refashion social practices and cultural expectations over time. Um, and, and instead, these, these older people are just full of sort of creative refashioning. Um, they transform their senses of who they are, meanings of family intimacy, gender relations within marriage, um, very self-consciously and, and, and creatively think about how to be a better grandparent than they felt like they, their experience was when they were grandchildren, um, how to you know, make sense of racial, um, uh, where they fit into the racial landscape in the U.S. also, just a, a lot of really creative rethinking. Um, so one thing that struck me in this um, theme is how Ken's Taiwanese American interlocutors create and use a lens of Americanization as an important interpretive framework to explain their transformed sensibilities and circumstances often. And so, for instance, Americanization is a key lens Ken's respondents use to explain why their U.S.-born children are so independent and why they themselves, the elders, actually want and accept their children's independence and their own independence, thinking that this is, okay, maybe better and it will sustain more harmony, et cetera. Um, and as Ken explains here, I'm quoting from page 69 of his book, many of the Taiwanese returnees I interviewed mobilized the concept of Americanization to manage their emotions when their children failed to respond in the ways they wanted. Um, and he quotes from an, an informant right after that, he's, uh, who says, children growing up in American culture will not act as you want them to. If they want you to do it, like listen to you or visit, they will do it. If they don't, asking too much will only hurt your own feelings. So I thought this compelling example of Americanization, which runs throughout the book, is um, here a useful tool for mitigating hurt that the um, older migrants employ. And it made me think that actually non-immigrant elders in the U.S. might 
it, it would be nice if they had such an interpretive tool because I'm thinking, let's say, of my mother-in-law who thinks that her son never calls enough, et cetera. It, 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 instead of blaming on like that he doesn't care, to be able to invoke a tool like Americanization could be useful um, for other people as well, too, or a different. It would have to be a different term. So let's see. My question for Ken on this theme was, were you surprised at how salient the theme of Americanization as an explanatory theme and what people seem to feel is a natural expected phenomenon was in your fieldwork? And in what ways maybe does this theme of Americanization also fit into your temporalities of migration framework? So my last um, set of remarks uh, relates to one technique and your uh, style and Ken's style of writing this ethnography. And this was that I was really struck by and truly enjoyed your rich of uh, interlocutor quotes throughout. Each chapter is, is, is filled with so many quotes. I mean, he conducted like a hundred or so interviews, so many interviews, rich in-depth interviews, you can tell. And I love the rich variety that were conveyed through all these diverse quotes. So each chapter, um, whether focusing on things like rethinking forms of inter intergenerational reciprocity and care in later life or on gender and the conjugal marital relationship or new modern ways of creating intimacy that people saw uh, with grandchildren on attitudes toward receiving state support, such as through social security or welfare and when you deserved it, when you wouldn't deserve it. Um, all of this, he highlights um, beautifully, not just one perspective, but we hear a lot of diverse voices, different interpretations, which reveals a very complex and very realistic sense of um, variety in the research that he, he's getting at the complexity. Um, and some of these um, different social positions are tied to social class and gender, but also just to different individual proclivities and, and different life family circumstances. Um, so the particularities that make up the really fascinating stuff of social cultural life. And we really see their thoughtfulness as well also in the creative agency through these quotes. So, and they do also a wonderful job of effectively showing rather than merely telling what Ken wants to highlight. And so actually, let me just quickly, I'd love to read um, one or two of the quotes of the interlocutor so I can also show rather than tell. He has some great stuff. So people brought up race before too. Um, early on, he, um, well, it's his life, his interviews focused on people's really long-term trajectories. So they spoke about when they first arrived in the U.S. also, which was often around the 1960s. Here's one who uh, arrived in the 1960s and he was confused about defining his race in the U.S. context. And he had been very poor and could not, he landed on the West Coast, but he was going to Boston. And so he took a bus across the country as something that he could afford. He says, Mr. Chang, this is on page 32. I remember taking a Greyhound bus from Seattle to Boston, Mr. Chang explained. Most of the passengers were white. Then we went through Nevada and Alabama. When we arrived in Alabama, there were some black people getting on the bus. When the bus stopped in Texas, I went to the bathroom. I noticed the bathrooms were divided into white and colored. There were two bathrooms for white and two bathrooms for colored. One of them was for men and one other was for women. And I did not know which bathroom I should use. I was not white or black. I was worried whether someone would beat me up if I entered the wrong bathroom. Back then, I did not know that this was so-called racial discrimination. I finally decided to use the bathroom for the Black people. On the bus, white people sat in front and Black people sat in the back. I did not know where to sit. 
So I sat in between. I started to think, what's going on and where do I fit? And there's many more rich quotes like this in this chapter. And you see people over time, how they um, you know, change and, and evolve their understandings of race in America and where they complicated ways they fit in. And um, let's see, I was just going to read one more um, about uh, also, there's a lot of really rich discussion on, on the idea of how, how to rethink relationships with your children in the U.S. context and whether you should expect care from them or not. Um, and most of the older uh, people say that, no, I'm not going to expect care from my kids. Well, for one, because I didn't give it to my parents because I moved away. OK, so how, why do I deserve it? So that's one theme. And also just that um, it's uh, this is the American way and, and people are more independent. <clears throat> so one uh, fellow, Mr. Chow, says he has a lot of women, too. I just happen to be choosing two men quotes, I guess. But it is just impossible to expect the younger generation in the U.S. to care for their parents. Respecting older people is necessary, but you're expecting your children to look after you is just too much. We first generation immigrants need to adjust our expectations too. Um, children have their own family and career to be busy with. Asking your children to give you money? Don't be silly. They don't even have enough money for themselves and their own children. If we keep expecting our children to care for us in traditional Chinese ways, we would only end up being disappointed and upset. Taking care of aging parents is just not part of the American culture. We have to realize that. And actually just below, here's another um, person who says briefly, I'll say, read this too. The U.S. is a society that encourages people to become independent. Everyone should be self-sufficient and be responsible for their own business. In the U.S., someone who is above 18 will be required to be independent and will be kicked out of his or her parents' house and goes on there. So anyway, you can see the, the really rich um, materials in Ken's book. And uh, my last question for him was if you have a favorite quote that you might like to read and share. But we might not have time for that. But if you do, I'd love to hear it. So thank you. Thank you so much, Nicole. I think you are the last person. Yeah, so I'm going to cut my comments shorter than where I had originally started because I really would like to be able to have a little bit of time, hopefully, to, to sort of come back think, um, to the group. But 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 I will say that um, there was so much that I loved about your book, really echoing Sarah, um, um, Sarah Lamb's comments in particular with like your focus on the sort of nuance and your attention to detail. I mean, I there were there were there were all sorts of wonderful things all over, but I also just love your, your, your central framework, your theoretical concept and conceptual concept around temporalities of migration. Um, uh, I want to say that like when I was reading it, in addition to, I'm not going to go into all the other things I think were great about it, but, but one of the things that, you know, came across is, you know, you've got this very interesting methodology where you've got this group of long-term migrants who came to the United States when they were younger adults. And then once they reach retirement age, you're trying to make a decision. Do I go back to Taiwan or do I stay in the U.S. where I've been um, now for a long period of time? Um, and the fact that you have this comparative across the different groups is really interesting. It allows us to get at sort of a very different facet of like understanding how all of these different experiences that they've had over time help build to this, this, this time in which they're making that decision to stay or to return and sort of what's all wrapped up in that for them. Um, but but the other thing that you, you, you say that you're trying to do with your methodology is that you have a spread across both the kind of uh, some working class and some professional class migrants. And, you know, honestly, for me, when I read this book, 
um, and particularly reading it against mine in which my interviewees were primarily working class um, or lower class migrants, um, I, it was really, it came across with me, for me much more as a sort of generalizable story for, for the professional migrants or that professional class aspect of it came across, right? And so in part, this was because um, I, I think that probably it's true that Taiwanese migrants were more likely to be able to migrate to the United States in the 60s and the 70s through professional categories rather than through family ties. And there's sort of a long history why that might be the case. Um, but it's also because there's so many moments in your book when we hear about how your interviewees are actively defining themselves in opposition to my Cantonese-speaking senior migrants. Um, and they look down, your interviewees look down on my interviewees, right? Because they're working class, um, because they, are, they perceive them to be trapped in Chinatown and unable to participate in more mainstream American society. And because they assume that because my interviewees live in subsidized senior housing, they're purposely trying to take advantage of the U.S. government social welfare for senior citizens, all, all of which, you know, we know, well, for those of you who read my book, know that, that that's not, in fact, at all how they see um, themselves and their roles. Um, at the same time, I think, I think, Sarah Friedman, maybe you were talking about this as, as Ken's interviewees age, you know, they find themselves often marginalized in their own Taiwanese American community, um, the largely marginalized and have to return to their Taiwanese American community networks for their primary means of support. Or they go back to Taiwan and they find that it hasn't become as modern or as westernized as they had expected since they left. And so some of them start to question whether their lives are actually as different from this other group of Chinese senior migrants that they've previously disparaged uh, after all. Um, so this class-based differential between your interviews and mine is, is a real one. It's also tied, as we know, to regional differences related to being Taiwanese Chinese versus from mainland China. Um, but I will note, um, just to throw out there, that my lower income Cantonese speaking senior migrants also looked down on. I mean, that is, they questioned the migration motivations of newer senior migrants from mainland China who were wealthier than themselves and who did not have that long term sense of personal connection through generations of family ties and Chinese diasporic life. Um, to the U.S. that they themselves did. So in other words, no matter which of these groups you look at, they find someone else to define themselves against as part of their attempt to counter what's generally racist anti-immigration rhetoric that requires them to create a moral justification for their presence in the U.S., no matter how much they actually feel that they belong to um, in or to um, the, this country and the very network, various networks of support that they find here. Um, so my, my thinking is that the similarity hints at other kinds of common experiences that we can track for these two groups of transnational senior migrants. Um, and, the, and, and so I wanted to spend a few minutes. I don't really have a question for you so much. I just, this is sort of for everybody. I'm just hoping to throw out how in some ways, I think using Ken's focus on temporalities of migration as a way to underscore migrant experience can allow me to focus on other commonalities of experience between his interviewees and mine, even though they have such substantial differences in life experience overall. Um, so the first is that through this framework, I feel like we can see how both groups of seniors negotiate their sense of belonging and identity as aging migrants 
through their previous life experiences, right? So Ken's interviewees have a sense of engagement with the U.S. that dates to the past. Um, maybe for some, it began with American military presence in Taiwan, but it seems like by the 1970s, they have this kind of idealized focus on America as a modern country with strong possibilities for the kinds of social and economic mobility that they hope to achieve. Um, but through their long-term life and work, um, in the U.S. over their adult years, um, Ken, it seems like many of your interviewees have become disenchanted with some aspects of life in the U.S., um, particularly because of encounters with racism and their work and personal lives um, over time. Um, in the end, we see that many of them have this kind of ambiguous sense of belonging to the U.S., um, which may at least partially fuel some of their desires to return to Taiwan, but those who do return to Taiwan may find that their expectations of life there aren't on point either. Um, some senior migrants feel like tai Taiwan isn't modern or Western enough, even though it provides that familiarity of language, food, or culture that seems reassuring to them in their sort of older years. Um, for my interviewees, on the other hand, their sense of connection to the U.S. began decades earlier. Um, Andrea talked about this a little bit. As children in the first half of the 20th century, and remained influential throughout their adult lives before they were finally able to migrate in their 60s and their 70s. Generationally, we've talked about also how for my interviewees, they admire what they perceive to be a more egalitarian society in the US or the possibility because of social supports and other kinds of resources that they can achieve a sense of well-being that wasn't available to them for some reason had they stayed in China. Um, they're able to live a more ideal lifestyle as seniors than what they had expected um, or what they it's what they had hoped for, but not what they were able to achieve in China. So for my interviewees, it's their Chinese cultural experiences, but not that they live longer adult lives in the U.S. that allow them to forge a sense of connection with and sense of belonging to the U.S. So I'm interested in how these very disparate past experiences still play into how they see themselves as being connected to or imagine themselves and for both groups as being um, you know, able to be in the U.S. Um, as older adults and the possibilities for their well-being through making that move. Um, second, uh, Ken, I think your framework allows us to see how both groups benefit, but in different ways from the possibilities of structural and community supports available in their locations of residence. Um, so for my group, I think they've, I show some ways that they're able to find both kinds of support in the U.S., um, sometimes through access to social security, low-income housing, Chinese language services, activities, peer networks in and around Boston's Chinatown locations. That's both downtown Chinatown and also in Quincy. But Ken, in your group, which seems seemingly much more financially and linguistically secure than my group, you know, they speak English. Um, they have much larger social security checks than my interviewees did. They spent decades living in the United States, um, often in desirable middle-income neighborhoods, um, and they are grateful for what they have achieved. You, you give us many quotes that, that make that clear, but they actually find out as they age that they may have better structural support in Taiwan because of the government subsidized health care services available there, 
right? So that provides a little bit of a complication maybe to what they had imagined or that it's during their younger years that that support didn't quite play out in the same way as they would have expected in their older years. Um, we see this again, I think, through their mixed experiences of community support as they age in the, U um, in the U.S. We've already talked about they had more uh, experience with largely ethnic Taiwanese communities but those who return to Taiwan have to reform community ties after having lived abroad for so many years. So, right, their outcomes just aren't maybe what they had expected um, in either location. And we have this almost sort of on a surprising situation in which my interviewees as seniors end up feeling like they have a better sense of support in the U.S., even though they've been there for a much shorter period of time. Um, Finally, we see that for both groups, their similarity of life stage as senior migrants results in some commonalities of experience, despite having lived in vastly different cultural contexts as younger adults, right? So we've already heard about how Kin's group um, left Taiwan for the U.S. as younger adults. Um, they had this longer-term residence. They created new forms of family ties in the United States that prioritized nuclear family forms. In part, this was because of their separation from extended family in Taiwan, but also because of the influence of their perceptions of American individualism. I think Sarah was talking about this in terms of that Americanization of their children. Um, for my group, in contrast, they, there's this focus on dreams deferred from their childhood or even their adult years, and that sense of separation from family members over decades. In some cases, that's both um, within China because of CC, CCP policies about work allocation and placement, but also that's because of that those sorts of separations of policy that prevented them from being able to migrate abroad and join their family members there. Um, so, you know, for this group, it fuels their later life desires to rejo rejoin or at least no longer be separated from spouses, children, or other family members as they age. But what I see is similarity is similar across both groups is that there's a similar kind of effect in terms of how they're renegotiating their intergenerational family relationships. Neither group wants to be a burden on their adult children. Each group seems to strive to be financially independent or even independent in other ways, sort of lifestyle ways. Um, a desire that on the one hand seems to be at odds with more traditional ways of thinking about elder care in many traditional Chinese cultural contexts, even though it's clear that throughout all Chinese cultural contexts, we're seeing ways that filial piety or thinking about fil filial piety are currently in flux. Um, another similarity is through their interactions with their American-born grandchildren. Both groups take pride in passing on key cultural and life skills that their grandchildren born in the United States might not otherwise learn by being raised here as well. Um, so these aren't really questions so much as just, you know, I'm curious to hear what other kinds of points of interaction or engagement can do you see or do others in this group see that we might want to think about moving forward with? Um, so that's all I have. Thank you so much. Uh, I think I want to address some of the comments I hear from three panelists. Uh, I want to start from Sarah Freeman's comments. I agree, time is not linear, time is social and cultural. So people's memories about the past play a crucial role. I also think that um, 
many people believe older people hold on to the, their past, but many of my respondents are very forward-looking. <laughs> they are planful, purposeful, and think about the future. And if you look at the sociological literature on immigrant incorporation, many scholars will tell you that, well, the longer immigrants stay in here, the more likely they are going, they are lose their transnational connections. This is not the case uh, with my respondents. This is also not the case with Nicole's respondents, right? A lot of times they're in, even they are older, even, but their encounter with US society reinforce or trans, um, strengthen their cross-border ties and connections or even imaginaries. Um, about heteronormativity, this is a really good question because we are recorded. I don't know how much detail I want to delve into. I talk a little bit about this in the appendix. Um, they do they do have certain ideals and ideas about how you should live your life, especially regarding younger generations. But at the same time, I also witness some of them are changing, especially when they realize their children are non-binary or, or homosexual or LGBT population. And they also debate about earlier gay marriage, legalization of gay marriage in the US and the legalization in Taiwan. And people from different political camps have different views on this issue. And I do think that this is a really good question. So I think the short answer is that I do think that for their generation, in many ways, they are traditional, but I also think they are not as conservative as we expect. They actually re, uh, re adapt to the new reality very quickly, in part because U.S. changing, in part because Taiwan is also changing. Um, and some of them, most of them mar uh, move as married couple, but some of them actually like met each other here as, uh, when they were younger. But the thing is for their generation, they, you, you just need to get married like really early in your life. And that's the advice they give me. And it's a lot of social and moral pressure. Um, about death, I think that it's a really good question. And um, before they pass away, their health also declined drastically. So some of my respondents really thought about moving back to Taiwan and spend their time in part because of more affordable care services, but their children usually object, right? If you die and bury in Taiwan, what are we going to do? We are not going to like to Taiwan and deal with all the complicated legal matters. So there's a lot of complicated negotiate negotiation within family. Uh, okay. And Sarah, Sarah Lynn's question, do, when I enter the field, do I have questions or conceptualization with Thai in mind? No, I did not know what I'm doing. So if you read my <laughs> dissertation, uh, I have no idea. So there's no mention of Thai. And I did not talk about the fact that long-term migrants. I actually come to this realization uh, that time is really important based on my conversation with Sarah Freeman in Hong Kong. I don't know if you remember, we had the conversation in the coffee shop and we talked about like what kind of topics and theoretical things can capture people's eyes, right? We go through different possibilities, right? So basically people are not interested in return migrants. So what captured people's attention is time, right? So I think that's a good idea. So I reread 
my transcripts. I rethink、uh, how to frame my case, and that's that's how time becomes a really central thing in my book. So thank you, Sarah.、Uh, Sarah. So and、uh, Americanization. I think both. Sarah Freeman and Sarah Lim mentioned this point: how ch- children's generation in the U.S. are different or similar to non-migrant children generation or grandchildren generation in Taiwan. Initially, when I entered the field, I think they are probably not that different. After living in diff- so many different places and moving back to Taiwan, I truly think there's a huge difference between children growing up in in the U.S. and people growing up in. Chinese societies like Hong Kong, mainland China, and Taiwan. For example, many of my students in Hong Kong do believe they need to give some money, a significant portion of their money, to their parents. Like they are young, their parents are also young, but they think they need to reciprocate for younger generation. And many people, for structural and cultural reasons, they still live with their parents, and they receive support from their parents. So, I would say that in Chinese societies like Taiwan, Hong Kong, Singapore, mainland China, people's relationships are more interdependent. But again, it's a matter of degree. It's not like really categorical differences. But I do think there are differences. My favorite, my favorite quotes. I don't have a favorite quote, at least not on top of my head. But I do have my favorite student. It's、uh, Zhang Liang's story. It's really, really hard to find working class or poor disadvantaged return migrants. So I actually, I try very hard to find、uh, to find Zhang, and he actually refused to talk to me. So he's a janitor in、uh, my friend's apartment. So I have to come and talk to him when he was off work, and use、uh, so every time I talk to him for like like about ten minutes. And he has a really bad temper, so he yells at me every time I ask him things about the U.S. In part because the image of Taiwanese American is are successful people, and he doesn't live up to that kind of social expectations. But I also I'm very grateful I I can interview him because I I do think his narratives and stories enrich my analysis.、Um, Nicole, you have a lot of good questions.、Um, I don't have time to address all the questions, but we, I do think we should write together, <laughs> right? Like so, like economy of belonging, how their past influence their judgment of future, how their perceptions are of different are different, and how their perception of the American society are informed by their different life trajectories. I do think these are important things we can work on together. And I really like your points about no matter what class background or social background you are from. You always discriminate against each other. We always perform these boundary managing strategies in relation to one another, and I think that's a really important point. Thank you. All right, so、um, we've. I'm, I'm sort of unhappy to say that we're actually at six o'clock already because I I don't know if we you know if we wanted to have a little bit more time to to talk. Um, just to hear sort of other voices come back in,、um, I, I guess I'll just ask super quickly: Does anybody have any other last comment or point that you want to add?、Um, really? Yeah.、Uh, great. All right.、Um, oh, go ahead, Russell.、Uh, yeah, I just like to pick up on 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 two things. Kind of looking to looking to the future. Somebody, I'm sorry, I can't remember who. Uh, mentioned that there was 
relatively little research on uh, aging migrants in the global south, particularly with reference to lifestyle migration. I think maybe it was Sarah who made that point, that lifestyle migration is, is largely looked at through a, a sort of northern or western optic. Um, there's uh, an upcoming special issue of the Journal of Ethic and Migration Studies, which is precisely on aging migrants in the global south, uh, which is kind of going through the refereeing process at the moment. It's co-edited co -edited by uh, Mega Amrith and uh, Dora Sampaio, who work out of the Max Planck Institute for Migration and Diversity, I think it's called, the one that Steve Vertovec directs in Göttingen. So that's something which is um, in train. Um, and then the other thing I was going to mention, yes, about time and temporalities, um, the next IMISCO conference, I don't know whether the word IMISCO means anything to you. I see Ken nodding his head, but it stands for International Migration and Inter Integration and Social Cohesion in Europe. It, it's basically Europe's largest network of migration and integration scholars, and it has a wonderful annual conference, which uh, next year, summer two, 2022, uh, 2022 uh, is in Oslo. Uh, and I think reflecting the interests of Jürgen Karling and Marta B. van Dertel, the overarching theme of the conference is precisely time and temporalities of migration. So that's just two little things kind of looking forward, which picks up on some interesting points that different people have mentioned in our, in our discussion. So thanks. Thank you so much, Russell. And thank you, everybody, for coming. I know that people have other things after this that they need to go to. Um, but I just appreciate so much, everybody. <laughs> I appreciate everybody so much taking the time to come and provide uh, both of us feedback on our work and give us all lots of food for thought, for thinking about future directions of research and, and what we can continue to work on and what we should be continuing to think about as we move forward um, with these topics. Thank you all. And congratulations Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Such congratulations. <laughs> thank you both that was really great so, Sarah I am and I'm so sorry that I misintroduced you at the beginning I was I was so you know kind of it was it was too much all at once at the beginning so no worries not a big deal <laughs>